Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Norquist. Today's guest is Rita Koganson, professor of political science at the University of Houston, formerly of the University of Virginia. During this discussion, we talk about her most recent book, Liberal States Authoritarian Families, Childhood and Education in Early Modern Thought. Over the course of that discussion, we cover a lot of ground, both about the educational views of the past and the present, particularly during a period where issues like parents' rights, children's rights, homeschooling, and where authority is appropriate in a classroom are so prevalent in political discussions. I think going back to the root of those ideas is a really necessary and important conversation. So with no further ado, I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Rita, welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. How did you come to fixate on on this particular topic uh, about early modern thought on education? Um, Well, I've always been interested in education and um, particularly from my own experience of education. One of the things that sort of stood out for me going to just like sort of average public schools in America uh, is... the suburbs of Chicago, um, was that my teachers didn't seem to want to exercise authority over uh-huh. us. They, in fact, tried to sort of avoid doing that and sort of, you know, you would have this kind of ethic of I'm your friend, actually, mm-hmm. um, or I'm your peer, which was like the worst because they would be like really old and not our peers in the most obvious ways, but trying really hard. Um, and I was just kind of puzzled about why they took that sort of position. And then when I got to the university, I sort of encountered for the first time um, teachers who were perfectly willing to sort of assert authority. I mean, in a different way, not disciplinary authority in the case of, at the university, but sort of um, the, the authority of you know, knowledge and understanding these, these texts. And I sort of stopped uh, rebelling as much. So I was, a, I was kind of a bad kid in school um, and got suspended a couple of times um, for, in fact, being insubordinate Uh, which I found to be like a very puzzling claim because how could I be insubordinate to people who didn't want to assert any authority? Right. Um, And that sort of just kind of vanished at the university because I felt like these people really knew something that they had something to teach and that it was sort of my place to, you know, shut up and listen and try to understand um, and to understand the books in the way that they understood them. Uh, And so that experience was sort of surprising to me. And I, I, kind of looked back at my K through 12 education and wondered why, you know, adults didn't want to do that earlier, right? Why adults who clearly knew much more than me when I was eight, right? Or 10 or 15 didn't want to assert that kind of authority. So most of my research actually comes out of sort of the puzzles of my own experience Mm -hmm. of education. And so this was one of those puzzles. um, And, you know, in reading in college, actually, when I read Locke and Rousseau for the first time, um, and uh, especially when I encountered Locke's education treatise um, and Rousseau's Emile, um, I sort of saw this very different approach to education, where on the one hand, you know, you could understand why the teachers that I had didn't want to assert their authority because it was sort of anti-democratic. Mm. And our regime doesn't really support this hierarchical understanding where I I'm just in a position of authority over somebody because I know something more. I'm wiser. I have more experience or something like that. It's just automatic, Mm. right? I didn't have to earn it. I didn't have to show my credentials. I didn't really have to like get elected by them. I mean, that's the main way that we sort of create authority is to say like, well, you voted for me. Of course, students don't vote for their teachers. Um, And so it's kind of incongruent with the regime. You know, in our civic lives, we're always taught to treat everyone else as equals. And I think in a deep sense, we feel other people to be our equals. Equals, right. So you don't like abuse people at the grocery store because they're the checkout clerk and you're the customer. You're sort of nice to them because, you know, you could be the checkout clerk, too. Maybe you were the checkout clerk when you were 15. <laughs> right. Um, and so there's a sense of civic equality that's really incongruent with this idea that over children or in certain circumstances, we're supposed to have a really hierarchical relationship. Mm. Um, And so what's interesting about what was interesting to me about Locke and Rousseau is that they're liberals in the sense that they recognize human equality in this basic sense um, and civic equality, especially. But they still reserve the 
necessity of hierarchical relationships in the family and in education, and they're not willing to say, well, we've got to relinquish that just because in general, we understand ourselves to be civic equals. And in fact, if we want to have civic equality for adults, we actually have to exercise this really hierarchical sort of authority over children, which seemed intuitively true to me from my own experience of education, that in general, that the teachers, the professors I had who were more willing to be authoritative were much better than the ones who were like, I'm actually your friend. I'm actually cool too. Like, let me into your peer group, right? I mean, you can sort of, I'm sure a lot of people have experiences with adults like that. Like they're just really ineffectual. Yeah, no, it, it is so funny that you say that because I feel like my educational experience was so similar. Uh, it's just hard to respect people who don't demand respect. And then I, I went to university in California, which it was just like a constant sort of humorous tussle about can my professors all wanted to be called by their first names. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not doing it. Like, you can't make me. But uh, it, it's so interesting, this idea that kind of comes through in your book. Uh, I mean, Americans are so allergic, I think, to authority kind of in every way. And it, it seems seems like ideologically, people, you know, are kind of divided between more authority, the better, and you kind of get the Hobbes on this, where the ultimate goal is authority, 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 or the American way of thinking about it, where it's like, less authority, we don't want any authority, we're trying to train people so that they'll never have any authority. Um, How do these philosophers, I mean, because to me, it just seems so obvious that there ought to be a balance between those two, do, do any of these philosophers you talk about address that or address the idea that maybe somewhere in the middle is the solution? Well, it's not so much the middle. It's that there's different spheres or different realms, right, in which we relate to each other in different ways. I mean, Tocqueville really, I think, draws this problem out very well, right? When he says, like, basically, Democrats want democracy all the way down. They want to make everything democratic. And they don't realize that that actually undermines democracy, Mm -hmm. right, if you take it all the way to sort of its extreme point. And so you have to bring these aristocratic elements kind of consciously Mm -hmm. back in. And one of the places where he's concerned about it actually is the family, um, he doesn't really talk much about education and democracy in America. He just says people get some education, but he doesn't, he's not interested in the structure of schools or anything like that. Um, but he does say, you know, there's this problem, which is that the, the logic of democracy is thorough and it doesn't mm-hmm. stop at certain institutions or certain spheres, but the, probably the proper way to think about it. And this is the way that for Locke, especially he thinks about it, right, is that you have the two treatises, especially the second treatise, which is a kind of treatise about political, you know, structures. Um, and there he posits equal- civic equality, right? And there's no qualification mm. of that. It's not that, well, you know, we're civically equal here, but not there. It's just here I'm talking about the public sphere or the public realm. And in the public realm, we are civic equals and there is no qualification to that. Um, And then you have this book on education, which is seemingly very much at odds with that. I mean, one of the first things he says is your children ought to look at you as lords, Mm. you know, to to fathers, Uh, even though he's just written this whole treatise saying like, nobody is a lord, right? Nobody has this kind of arbitrary authority over somebody else. Uh, And so it seems like if you try to think this through, right, it seems that the family is one sphere. Um, and he's especially adamant to have the family be really separate from civic life, right? That you sort of withdraw into your family when you have children, what he's describing, the kind of education that he's formulating and proposing um, for for the person that he's writing this treatise to kind of requires total, you know, absorption. You know, you're homeschooling your kids effectively on an estate somewhere in the country. You're not really near other people. You're not really engaged in social life. I mean, in in broader society, you're not in London. Um, And so there's a kind of withdrawal from civic society during this period of time that you're educating your children so that the separation is in a sense even more obvious and extreme than it would be if we were to say, you know, well, there's education, obviously, in a liberal regime. You send your kids to a school, right? That's like a couple blocks from your house or something like that, right? And there there you see a lot more integration of, you know, the family is just part of the city and the city is part of the country and we're all sort of public all the time. Whereas for Locke, it's like, no, you withdraw to the country and, you know, you don't see other people that often. You don't see society, especially high society that often. 
Um, and and there's a real separation there. Mm. And it's interesting. It reminds me very much of uh, Polybius, if you're familiar, the idea of like balancing aristocratic and democratic um, ideals and oligarchic together to create a form of education. Yeah. I mean, it's a question of the mixed regime is really interesting, right? Because you know, Locke is writing in response to Hobbes and Baudin, and these are the people I talk about at the beginning of the book, the absolutists. And the absolutist argument, the argument for absolute sovereignty starting in Baudin is there can be no such thing as a mixed regime. There never has been a mixed regime. Mm. Ultimately, there is a sovereign in every regime, and that sovereign has this kind of, you know, as Schmidt formulates, a final power. Uh, and so the mixed regime is a kind of illusion that Polybius, you know, who you mentioned, is describing. Um, and Locke, although he accepts a lot of the arguments that, you know, come out of Hobbes, especially about rights and natural equality and things like that, doesn't talk about sovereignty. I mean, it's a notable absence in the second treatise. He never uses the term. Uh, he talks about how the legislature is supreme, but it, then when you look at what the legislature can do, it turns out that it's basically looks like, you know, the American Congress. It has, there's all these checks and balances and there's, you know, the monarch has powers and, you know, there's other parts of the government. So he's a kind of anti-sovereignty thinker, I think. And mm-hmm. you see the, the sort of, in the beginning um, of the second treatise where he says, you know, there's, there's different ways of, of ruling people. I mean, it's sort of the invocation of Aristotle's politics at the beginning, that there's household rule, there's political rule, and then there's rule over slaves. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's right to say that for Locke, there is a kind of partial return to the mixed regime, although now he has to take on board these critiques that he's you know, had to deal with in the early modern period, the sovereignty critiques that say, look, there's really no such thing as ultimately mixed power, that mm. there has to be kind of a final locus of power. So talk to me a little bit about congruence. You talk a lot about it in your book, um, but it it seems very relevant to what we were just discussing. I mean, this question of whether or not the family structure should in some way mirror the structure of the state. Um, Is it the case that the same principles, say, of mixed government, of authority, or what have you, apply to both? Um, Or is it the case that there are sort of separate ideal forms that are maybe, in fact, complementary or opposite. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to the question of whether there can be a mixed regime, right? Whether you can have different principles operating in different spheres. Um, And so I think, you know, what's really interesting about, you know, Baudin is not widely read, partly it's because he's not actually, hasn't been translated into English for 400 years. Yeah, let's actually dip back and explain (laughs) to our listeners who that is. (laughs) Yeah, so Jean Baudin is a a 16th century French uh, political theorist who wrote uh, a couple important books, the most important important or widely read of which is called the six books of the Republic. Um, and he sort of formulates the theory of sovereignty, right? Right. Which is that there is a, a locus of power in the state that has, I mean, he, as he puts it, sort of jurisdiction over five things like the pardoning power, the power to declare war. I mean, he has a whole list, but Schmidt, Carl Schmidt in the 20th century kind of helpfully narrows it, sort of flattens it to the final say, somebody who gets the final say in the regime. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's not a totally unfair characterization of what Baudin was describing, although Baudin's description is, is more complicated than that. Um, and so, and that's a really shocking sort of claim because really, you know, even the, in the Renaissance, there's an understanding of the regime, the, mm-hmm. the mixed regime as a kind of ideal constitution. Right. Um, so you have, you know, the the king, but there's also a, a, not exactly a legislature, but some kind of a res- aristocratic body that kind of, you know, moderates the king. So in, in France, that'd be the parlements, which are, you know, judicial sort of bodies of aristocrats. Um, and then you have, you know, the people and the people have certain prerogatives too. And plus in feudalism, you have different families with their particular prerogatives and you have corporations that have their particular prerogatives. And there's no final power in a regime. It's all, you know, the balancing of all of these different prerogatives. Uh, And so, and Baudin says, no, all of that is flattened under the sovereign. And you could have a democratic sovereign, you can have an aristocratic sovereign, but both of those are really not so convenient. Uh, What you really want is a monarchical sovereign. And that's, you know, Hobbes makes that point Mm. even more strongly. So, you know, Hobbes follows Baudin in certain things. I think Hobbes is a much more sophisticated thinker than Baudin and is interested also in psychology in ways that Baudin doesn't really take into account. Um, and so that becomes kind of the argument. I mean, that that's the argument to challenge and to deal with in the 17th century when you think about what is a regime. Right. Uh, and so, 
part of what they do too, when it comes to the public and the private, is to make the case that you can't have a different structure of the family than the regime. In fact, the family is a really useful educative tool because if you structure the family like an absolute monarchy, then children will learn obedience to an absolute monarch right from the cradle, essentially, right? Because their father will be a kind of surrogate absolute monarch within the family. Uh, and so you want to, to structure the family. And Baudin is very sort of, you know, explicit that we have to reformulate the family. We have to change what the family is to make it more like this. Because in fact, like, you know, French fathers don't have, there's this Roman power of life and death right. uh, where the Roman father has the right to put his own sons to death. Um, and he doesn't have to like consult a jury or a judge about that. Uh, and that had been sort of abolished by Christianity and Baudin calls for its return. And the reason that he wants that back is because it, of course, makes the father more like an absolute monarch. Right now he has these real powers. He can kill you. Uh, and so you should regard him in the way, at least more like the way that you would regard your your monarch, your sovereign. And Hobbes, in a complicated way, also uses that structure, right? Also says we have to kind of reformulate the family so that it's structured more like the model of the state. So they start with this model of an absolute monarchy in the state, and then they want to restructure the family so it more sort of effectively replicates that experience. And that's congruence, right? Yeah, yeah. So the family is congruent with the state. Yeah. I know that example of the, I know my like Roman history brain gets so frustrated when I hear that example. Because I think the idea is that, oh, well, the father would never want to kill his son. Right. So, but of course, I mean, I don't know. In actuality, Romans use this all the time. Like, you know, if you have an unwanted infant and you leave it out, I mean, it was like how, especially sex slavery and things like that, like 100% people were using this, you know, taking infants that were left out to die or what have you in Rome. So it's, a, I don't know, a frustrating claim for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, Baudin says, of course, you would never want to do this, right? So like, I mean, he's trying to reassure people. Yeah. You know, we're going to bring back this barbaric practice. Don't worry. It's not really that barbaric. Like fathers love their children. They don't want to just wantonly kill them, but you have to give them at least the possibility of doing so in order to create that structure of, you know, fear and obedience that would replicate how a subject should sort of understand his sovereign relative to himself. Um, I know. Well, it's just frustrating because it's not true. <laughs> like Roman fathers absolutely did. Um, the French I, didn't try it. They didn't I take know. it up on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess, so then looking at that, I mean, how do we think now about similarities and differences between uh, the authority of the sovereign and the authority of a parent? How does that progress? Um, do later philosophers challenge that view of Hobbes that they need to be just the same kind of authority? Yeah. I mean, liberalism generally challenges yeah. that kind of congruence, um, at least early liberalism. Then it kind of, as it gets sort of infused with democracy, that sort of falls away. And we can talk mm. about that in a second. But I mean, one of the things that Locke does that really diverges from Hobbes is to say, no, there is no congruence between the family and the state, right? That we can, we don't need to use the, the family as a kind of model state, that actually the education that we want for citizenship is a kind of inversion of the, the actual practice of citizenship, that you don't teach people to be sort of civic equals by having them at the age of three practice civic equality with their parents because they're not in a position, they don't have the rationality to do that. And in fact, it would destroy them to do that because what it would do was inflame their passions and make it impossible for them to develop a kind of strong will that can control their passions. And in order to develop that, which is the sort of, you know, we would just call it self-control, sort of, you know, as a, in, in a, common way, uh, to develop that kind of self-control, you actually need a lot of authority over you as a child when you're like least able to naturally control yourself. So you can practice self-control, not that you practice equality and freedom. Right. In fact, you practice, you know, suppressing your desires so that when you're an adult and you, then you can bring your reason to bear on, you know, the, your desires and then select those desires, which are reasonable and sort of reject those other desires in you that you think are unreasonable. So Locke sees that as kind of the correct education for freedom. So the, the only way that you would not have to have an absolute despotic government controlling you is if you could control yourself. Right. And then you need a certain kind of education to be able to do that. And that education is an authoritarian education that develops your your will and your ability to control your desires. And then you can sort of be free from government as an adult. 
that requires a lot of government as a child. So, and Rousseau follows him to a large extent in this sort of claim um, about what education requires, that education requires the kind of instilling of self-control. I mean, he sort of has two educations. One is like this totally natural one where you would just never have the wrong desires. Uh, but then it turns out once you put Emile into society, it's like not that compatible right. with society. So he sort of has to restart at adolescence and say, no, now it's kind of about yeah. controlling your desires because you do have these wayward desires that would undermine society if you were to act on them. Um, so those two arguments about education are more interested in the development of self-control and they see authority as really essential, adult authority, parental and educative authority as essential to that development of self-control. And we still are yeah. very lock-in, I think, in our understanding of education, though, you know, it's hard to see the, I mean, you know, we don't think of ourselves that way because we don't read Locke, but, or we don't read the education treatise, but it's really there. Uh, but at the same time, democracy kind of chips away at that distinction because mm -hmm. it's not intuitive. The intuitive thing is actually what Bodin and Hobbes believed, except for democracy, which is that like, if you want to train people to be a certain way, you just do that to them from childhood. They practice those habits and then they treat everybody as equals, right? If we just make you treat everybody as equals from the beginning, you'll treat everybody as equals all the time. If we, you know, make you free from the beginning, then you'll be free. You'll be a free citizen when you grow up. And it's actually very complicated in your mind to hold this position where you say, actually, what you need is a lot of authority in childhood and then freedom in adulthood. That's kind of less intuitive than the family is a small state. Right. Right. Um, and so as the, as liberalism itself becomes more egalitarian and more democratic in the 19th and 20th centuries, we sort of lose that Lockean Rousseauian dichotomy mm. between the family and the state. And we want to make the family more and more congruent with the state. So once you, you know, by the time we get to the 1970s, with John Rawls and then the followers of Rawls who are writing about education and the family, they're arguing about democratic education. That's literally the title of Amy Gutman's book uh, or like the liberal family. And so then it's about, well, we want to use the family to foster certain liberal and egalitarian norms in children so that when they grow up, they will practice them. And I think that is, it is so intuitive that it's hard really to hold the mm -hmm. earlier idea in your right. mind uh, so I think that that has been sort of eroded and we see that, you know, among other places and like your average yeah. public school where you have the sort of attitude of teachers that the only way to be listened to by students is to be respected at their level, which is to sort of lower yourself mm -hmm. to the level of a child. Super interesting. Um, it seems to me, because I mean, these texts that you're talking about, they were not written in democratic societies like the ones we live in, which is easy to forget because democratic societies read so much Locke and Rousseau, and it's mm -hmm. kind of like in the bones of, of, of you know, American history. Um, but in fact, they weren't written with America or with democracy in mind. They were written in, you know, very kind of hierarchical um, society and written for families who were off on, you know, some country estate mm -hmm. uh, raising their children. I mean, given that, how, how do you deal with importing lessons from them into kind of like a mass public education society like the one that we actually have? Yeah, I mean, that's the subject of my next book, actually, because I think oh, exciting. America poses a kind of dilemma for us, right, which is that you can't actually do what Locke and Rousseau are proposing, which is like take your children out in the country yeah. and effectively homeschool them. Yeah. Um, you know, you can't do that on a mass scale. So like, we kind of came close, actually, during the pandemic. Everybody was suddenly homeschooling. But right. I don't think they loved it too much. Uh, <laughs> although the number of people who have stuck with it is actually much higher yeah. than it used to be. You know, it used to be like a very small yeah. percentage of people were homeschooling. And now we, there are many more who've stayed with it after the pandemic. And the United States is probably the most liberal with its homeschooling allowances. You know, if you think about OECD countries or, you know, mm. the Western world or however you want to think about it, developed countries, um, the United States has like the, the fewest requirements and sort of the mm. most freedom to homeschool your kids um, out of all of these places. So there is this kind of sense. I mean, it's recent, right? Homeschooling has only right. been legal really since the 80s. Um, oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, well, it was legal in the 19th century because no one was paying attention. There was no compulsory right. schooling. But once you had compulsory school laws, the, then homeschooling became effectively illegal. And home, right. compulsory school laws kind of 
finished spreading around the country the early 20th century during the progressive period. Mm. Uh, So then it became illegal to homeschool. And uh, nobody wanted to, or very few people wanted to anyway at that point. Uh, And then there was a kind of movement starting in the 1960s, a strange kind of combination of sort of leftist hippies and uh, conservative Christians who Mm -hmm. wanted to pull their kids out of schools because they had very different objections to the public schools uh, or just to schooling in general. And they sort of created a legal um, strategy to legalize homeschooling. So that was done at the state level. Um, So, but now, you know, we're the sort of the furthest along in that. Um, But it's still the case that most people can never do it in a democracy for reasons sort of Tocco lays out. Everybody has to work for a living. Um, And if you're working for a living, you don't have the time and the means to educate your children. So you need schools. And, you know, Locke and Rousseau don't have much to say about, you know, don't have much good to say about schools. Later liberal thinkers do. I mean, Smith writes about how there should be a system of public schools, uh, mostly for poor kids. And he says, well, rich, rich families find ways. Um, and, <laughs> you know, Mill also has, you know, sort of important uh, entry into this tradition where he talks about the way that school is kind of brainwashing you, but at the same time, like there have to be public schools, otherwise we can't really have liberalism. So there's a kind of tension between state school, the, the sort of state run nature of schools and the necessity of schools. Um, and he's already closer to a more democratic, I mean, he's, you know, writing in 19th century Britain, it's moving much more towards mm. democracy. Um, but yeah, I mean, the United States poses this really interesting dilemma, which is we need the schools but we really uh, sort of appreciate the Lockean fear about schools, which is that they are going to sort of disable students morally because they, they subject them to each other's authority because there's just not enough adults. The adults are not really good at exercising authority over large groups of kids. And so what you do is you follow each other uh, right. and students exercise authority over each other, but that authority is like really kind of nefarious a lot of the time. Um, you know, so bullying would be sort of the extreme example of it, but you know, just like peer pressure clicks, like everything about, right. you know, American middle school that you can think of, like, that's exactly what Locke and Rousseau <laughs> are afraid of is that people are going to be formed by other, you know, basically ignorant fools like themselves. Mm. Um, and they're going to be made to follow fashion, especially because that's sort of the, the reigning monarch of child groups mm. is fashion, the tyranny of fashion. Um, and so it's what can Americans do if they appreciate that critique, but on the other hand, they have a practical problem, which is that they can't just retire to the country estate and hire a tutor or teach their kids themselves. Um, And so I think, you know, one of the answers to that is that our approach to schooling is really antagonistic in a way that's pretty unique, again, in Mm. sort of developed countries, OECD countries. I mean, we share it a little bit with Britain and other Anglophone countries, uh, which is that we hate school. And we have, you know, if you think about our popular culture, it's like all of these depictions of school as oppressive, conformist, like it's what, you know, you have to rebel against. Mm. And that is a kind of preservative for a democracy, which is this kind of skepticism towards school, towards teachers, towards the authority of teachers. Um, So, you know, you see this in like sort of teen movies from the yeah, 20th century. Yeah. I mean, like Ferris Bueller's Day Off is kind of the, the canonical movie of rebelling against your stupid, you know, high school teachers and the banality of high school. Uh, but there's a kind of ethic. I mean, I think it, it actually runs pretty deeply in our sort of literary culture. And you see it yeah. starting with Frank Benjamin Franklin, um, who writes, you know, in his autobiography is a kind of account of his education. And it, it features very little schooling. He had two years of schooling and the rest he did himself. And it's sort of like the canonical account of American self-education. And, you know, I think you see it, there's, you can trace a kind of line from Franklin, who is not anti-school, like he funds schools. He helps to found the University of Pennsylvania. He founds the academy that's, which is basically like a high school that's like attached to the University of Pennsylvania, um, later absorbed into the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, So, and he donates money to schools. So it's not that he's anti-school, but he Mm. sees schools as not really the whole source of education, or they should Mm. not be the whole source of education. And you see the same thing, you know, Mark Twain's 
books later, uh, Louise Alcott's like um, Little Women, right? They don't right. really go to school. I mean, one of them goes to school, but it's not good for her. She's she's already so vain and it be, makes her even vainer. Um, but they basically like their education happens, you know, with each other, the, the sisters, you know, in their attic, they like write plays, they write poems. This is really where they're being educated. And school is just like this place you go to like learn to read or something like that, right? It just doesn't have this kind of centrality in their understanding of education. You know, Tom Sawyer, I mean, Huck Finn, especially, you know, there's a kind of real animus towards school. Um, and it turns out that like reading and writing are useful to them. They like kind of realize, you know, both Huck and Tom realize at some points that like, it's a good thing that they learn to read and write, <laughs> but basically like there's nothing else good to be said about school. Um, and so th- this attitude towards school, you know, we see it in Henry Adams, you see it then in all of this 20th century film and television and stuff, this attitude towards school where it's like, we recognize that we need it for these basic skills which is exactly what, you know, Locke and Rousseau, right. you know, we need, we do need to be literate. We do need to be numerate. Uh, if our parents can't teach it to us, somebody's got to teach it to us, but we don't take it to be morally authoritative. Right. Right. And that really, we understand our education as something that happens with our friends outside of school and often like against what we're taught in school. So I think that's kind of the American solution, which is also a kind of fragile solution. But if you think about, you know, Western Europe, um, East mm-hmm. Asia, the attitudes towards school there are very different than our attitudes. They're much yeah. more, you know, respectful of teachers. Teachers have a lot of status, social status in society, right? They're like, school matters a lot. The outcomes of school matter for us. Like that's more and more the case that the outcome, you know, the grades you get, mm. where you get into college, all of these things matter more for your life outcome. But for most of American history, that was not at all the case. Like nobody went to college. It didn't matter if you did well in school, that wasn't going to determine anything about your life, you know, in the future. Uh, and maybe in some ways that was like a more salutary situation for democracy that you didn't have this kind of intense, you know, determinations based on, you know, life determination based on school, because that, of course, elevates the authority of school, which is, I think, what Franklin, especially who saw this tension very clearly, had read Locke and read Rousseau, uh, was worried about that we would treat the institution of school as this really authoritative thing and conform to it. Yeah, I mean, you kind of answered my follow-up, which is who's to say that not respecting school is necessarily a bad thing? I mean, I'm a little bit playing devil's advocate here, um, but it just seems like if, again, with the congruence thing, like if your goal is to train Americans who are going to be, you know, independent, and in the case of Benjamin Franklin, inventors and all this other stuff, training them from the outset that you're going to have authority, but you shouldn't put it on a pedestal, you could argue is helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the the problem in the United States is that we don't really, and Toko saw this very clearly, is we yeah. really, it's very hard for us to to justify authority, even in the family. Yeah. Because the family yeah. doesn't have the kind of resources that the aristocratic family had. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, in the very sort of last ditch thing that Locke offers for parental or especially paternal authority is like, Ultimately, your father controls the estate and right. he can decide not to give it to you if he doesn't like you. Right. So there's like that's like the last you know resort. You know, he doesn't say that's how you should lead. You should lead by making your son love you and respect yeah. you. But like if you can't do any of those things. Right. You can withhold the estate from him and you can withhold his inheritance. And that should be an incentive to him to comply and obey. But in the United States, we don't have an estate. We don't have an inheritance. We don't have these kinds of things to sort of sustain uh, parental authority. And so it is the hardest thing to sustain. And, and this uh, alternative that I'm sort of articulating that starts with Franklin and runs through Twain and Alcott and all of these other thinkers is, you know, it's not an authoritarian alternative. It's that you turn to your friends rather than you turn to other adults because there aren't enough adults around. Um, and there aren't reliable adults and a lot of adults, I mean, especially in like Franklin's autobiography, a lot of adults are like frauds and crooks and they're trying to take advantage mm. of your youthful naivete. And so it's very hard to find adults to trust, uh, who are going to sort of invest in you. And so because of that, it's other, you know, it's, it's basically your own friends that you have to, you have to make friends and then you have to sort of turn to them uh, for your education and you sort of work together to educate each other. Uh, and that's not a hierarchical sort of solution. That's like a pretty egalitarian solution. So it, I think becomes, you know, even more difficult. I think we're, we have a situation, the American middle-class today has a situation where the family can exert more authority. I mean, Franklin, you know, has, 
had, there were 17 children in his family. His father was the candle maker. Like this is a very difficult situation if you want to exert authority. But, you know, here we're living in a world of middle-class families who they do, you know, parents work, but they have, you know, only two or three kids and it's, they're not so strapped for money that they are constantly working. Uh, so there's more of a kind of control over your children. You see your children more, you're able to sort of interact with them more. Um, but it's still difficult, I think, to justify in the United States. It's a really, you know, on the one hand, you need to develop self-control. On the other hand, there aren't a lot of organic ways in a democracy to do that. I mean, it's interesting because some of the ways, I mean, these discussions of how much should you draw authority from the people around you, it feels very kind of like Lord of the Flies-esque. Like, um, and you would think that given that these philosophers are so skeptical of that, that that would be, I mean, if you really hold the view that like the worst possible thing is to draw authority from your peers, that's pretty damning for democracy. Uh, and it's interesting that you brought it up because I think that kind of is you're right. It is the situation we're in. People are drawing a lot of authority from their peers. But- well, I think we have to distinguish between peers and like, you know, friends. Okay. So the way that Franklin does this, right, is you find specific individuals mm. who are like you and who have these, I mean, in Franklin's case, he's, he calls himself a bookish lad. He has these bookish tendencies. And obviously like most boys are not like that. And it's, in fact, he sees, so he finds his few friends in Boston first and then mm-hmm. in Philadelphia. And he see, like they see each other as against the world. It's mm-hmm. like our little group, we are, you know, reading, you know, Cato's letters or something yeah. like that, you know, a little bit more elevated than yeah. whatever most teenagers are reading today. <laughs> but that was the popular reading of the time. We're reading this. We are like perfecting our, our writing skills. We are doing, we're exchanging letters. And like all these other guys are out there drinking in the pub. Mm. Right. So it's not like my peers at large. That's why the school, the peers group of the school is a problem, mm. but it's the friend group that you carve out of that. And it's the same thing you can see in like little women. Right. So it's like their family. They have right. these four sisters, right. Their friend and everybody else is on the outside mm. and they, you know, it's not like all of us, you know, 16 year olds or something like that. Um, and it's the same thing with Huck and with, you know, Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer, where it's like, I have selected, Tom mm-hmm. Sawyer has selected, you know, like the seven boys that he's going to hang out with in the woods and all these other fools who like care about going to school or, you know, those people are, we're against them. Mm. So there is a sense in which you, you kind of create this isolation and separatism, but you do it with people your own age rather than with adults who do it for you. So, I mean, I think that that's, that's like a key distinction is it's not about like, you know, the being part of your class or your school. That's what the sense in which you oppose your school, right. Is because right. you have your own friends and you're different and you have, you know, your own, you're, you're against them. I mean, we can't all be different, <laughs> can we? <laughs> no, you're the same as your friends, right? But the sense of like, I'm separate. The school is nefarious. The yeah. school is kind of the enemy, right? It's not like I have class spirit, right? It's that right. me and my friends are getting what we need from this school, right? We're getting literacy or numeracy or we're learning whatever it is we need to learn. And then ultimately, though, our education is taking place together with each other. And that education is this thing that is much bigger than schooling. Mm, gotcha. And I think that that's very hard for us now to sustain too, is that distinction. Because we tend to think of schooling as basically the entirety of education, right? And it's like so long that it like effectively, I mean, it's hard not to say that it's the entirety of education if you're like, you know, graduating from, you know, med school at 30 right. and you've been in school your whole life. So it's very easy, I think, to conflate those two things and say schooling is education. And as schooling becomes more and more imperial, like it just takes over more and more aspects of people's lives and more and more things get sort of brought into schooling that used to be outside of it, it's a lot easier to make this mistake and say, yeah, this is education. Like school teaches me like how to take care of my body. School, Mm. you know, there's health class, there's like financial literacy class, there's, you know, all of these sort of life skills classes folded into schooling. And so, yeah, that's obviously education. Uh, But I think that the original distinction, you know, that schooling is not education Mm. that comes out of Locke and Rousseau Mm. uh, is, I think, becoming harder and harder for us to sustain because of that. Interesting. I mean, I'm still caught on the detail, like, you know, by inherently the entire school is not Ferris Bueller's, you know, that there's one Ferris Bueller and the same with all these friends, right? But whatever. I mean, we can't (laughs) all be the exception, right? 
Yeah, but with your friends, you always feel that you are, yeah. right? And it, it is democratic to say, like, friendship is a democratic possibility, right? Which right. is in the sense that everybody can, I mean, not everybody does, but everybody can make friends. Right. And that you feel in your friend group something separate from this larger entity of the school, that you don't think that all of your friends, you know, everybody at your school is interchangeable. These people are your friends. They right. have something in common with you. And there is a kind of natural social antagonism among yeah. these little groups, you know, even in like a non various way in a regular classroom where people basically get along, you know, you prefer your friends to the rest of the group. Uh, so I think that's like a, actually a fairly democratic solution. I mean, it's not totally inclusive, right? Right. Like the, the inclusive birthday party that my children have, right? You have to invite everybody in the class to the birthday party. Like yep. that's fine when they're little, right? They don't really make these distinctions, but um, that sort of ideology or this mentality that like everybody has to be in everything really crushes the possibility of having these friend groups that separate themselves right. that help you to develop something outside of and maybe even against school and give you a broader conception of what education could potentially be. Gotcha. So I, I would be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit about rights, which is a favorite mm -hmm. enlightenment topic and very much at a, you know, a touchstone right now. I mean, because initially, and you've kind of talked about this, there are these movements for children's rights. At this juncture now, there are movements for parents' rights. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like your book very much touches on both. I mean, these two ideas, children's rights and parents' rights, where do they come from ideologically? Um, well, I mean, both of them come from much later than the period that I'm examining. Um, but in there, the root of, you know, the instinct on both of them, I guess I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, Locke's sort of understanding is that the state leaves the family, the state has to leave the family alone right. in order for the family to do the work that he's sort of exhorting it to do, right? So it's really, you know, in order for you to sort of retreat to your country estate and educate yeah. your own children there's a sense in which the state can't be mandating what you're doing, right? But this, you also have a certain duty to do so, to produce a certain kind of citizen for the state, right? And so there's a tension there, which is that the state can't enforce the thing it most needs, which is a certain kind of civic education of the sort that Locke is describing. Of course, like you could retreat into your country estate and do the opposite of what Locke is describing, right? And then there would be a problem, but the state would be sort of, um, you know, without the resources to do anything about it. So there has to be this high level of trust. And this works more in an aristocratic liberalism like Locke's than it does in democratic liberalism. Uh, so, you know, you could say there's an idea of parents' rights kind of in implied mm. in Locke, although he certainly would never articulate such a thing, uh, which is simply the understanding that the state has to stay right. out of the family in order for the family to do its job right. correctly and effectively. Uh, but, you know, that's not every family is going to be the aristocratic right. family. And Locke has a different treatise on education for the poor. And it's like, well, you put them in a <laughs> warehouse and then they're, you know, they're taught the following things for eight hours a day. And then they go and they work in, in the factory right. or whatever. I mean, there weren't no factories yet, but anticipating this, this yeah. point. Right. So it's not that you leave them be and you let their parents decide because you know, their parents aren't going to do anything. Their parents don't have yeah. the means to help them. Right. So already if you, I mean, he doesn't try to bring these two things together or systematize them or think, I mean, he doesn't have a conception of mass right. society. Right. So you could just make these two separate recommendations for these two separate classes and leave it at that. Um, Rousseau is a little bit more, I think, prescient in that he sees that, you know, one of the things he says is you have to educate your son to have potentially the lowest position in society because you don't know what's going to happen in the future. You know, social classes are moving around and you can't think that your son, because you're an aristocrat, is going to be an aristocrat. You know, the situation may change. It's very prescient because, you know, 30 years later, yeah. it does radically change. <laughs> uh, so he has this understanding, you know, so Emil gets educated to be a carpenter. Right. Right. You need to educate. And Locke has a little bit of this, too, because he also thinks you should educate aristocratic boys in like sort of common trades, um, not so that they can make a living, though, just because like this is good knowledge to know. Um, and Rousseau says, well, I mean, really, you might, he might need to make a living as a carpenter. Yeah. You don't know. So there is a sense already that society is kind of going, is at least will in the future, um, be more, uh, mobile. Mm -hmm. And so everybody should have the same education. It's a kind of Emile-esque right. education because that actually should fit you out for any 
uh, class or any role that you find yourself in. But of course, like the means to getting it are not available to everybody. You know, it's not really a real proposal in that sense. Uh, so I think, um, you know, th- there is a sense that there is going to be a mass society, maybe, or, you know, some inklings of that. Um, but when you really have a mass society, as you know, we start to have in the late 19th century and the early mm. 20th century, when you get the rise of children's right. rights um, and, and sort of parents' rights and these kinds of debates, uh, that's when you really have to face this problem because you've got to have a uniform law, but you know, there are different sorts of families out yeah. there. And you've got to allow the state to say like, well, there's certain kinds of parenting that we can't mm-hmm. tolerate. Uh, and where do we draw the line? And I mean, I think it's just like an enormously difficult problem that has plagued the entire mm. 20th century and, you know, is continues, you know, is chasing us still today. Um, and you could say both of these claims come out of Locke because for Locke, like children don't owe anything to their parents. Mm. It's all, you know, parenting the the right, you have parents' rights in the sense that the state right. can't interfere with you or shouldn't interfere with you. But what is it that they're not interfering with? They're interfering with your fulfillment of your parental duties, which are like always in the best interest of mm. children, not in the best interest of parents. Right. So all obligation flows from parents to children for Locke. And it's like, you know, children have a right to their inheritance. Children have a right mm. to an education. Children, I mean, he doesn't say it in those words, but it's like, that's what you owe to children. And they don't really have a duty or an obligation of obedience. Mm. You have to cultivate that in them. That's like the big challenge in law because you've got to make them voluntarily mm. obedient to you because you don't have any means of enforcing that obedience on mm. them. And so the state has to stay out, but you basically have to do all these things for your children. And so that, again, that immediately raises the question, well, what if you're negligent in doing these things for your children, right? Then have you violated their rights? And if you violated their rights, then who is going to be the entity that enforces their Mm. rights, right? And so we come up with, of course, the state will be the entity that enforces their rights, like the only other thing left. Um, But yeah, that then you have another problem, which is that Locke says, well, if the state gets involved, then you can't really do these things correctly. So Locke sort of creates this tension in his mm. account of the family. This is all in the second right. treatise. This is not the, the treatise on education. Uh, and we have to, we're sort of stuck working right. it out. Uh, and we have, you know, leaned more towards parents' rights at various points, more sometimes more towards children's rights, or we try to balance these things. Um, but there's sort of a fundamental tension in having the state be the enforcer. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it reminds me, you know, of the beginning of our conversation when we were talking about, you know, parallels between the sort of authority for the state and the family. I mean, I guess now would be a good time to maybe incorporate Rousseau into that discussion, because my understanding from your book is that he's saying, right, that there are scenarios in which the school kind of replaces the family. Am I am I understanding that correctly? Uh, well, I mean... Rousseau doesn't really have an account. I mean, he, he talks yeah. about convent schools and things like that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he sees sort of modernity or what he calls bourgeois society as, you know, lots of things start to replace the family because the right. family falls apart in <laughs> Interesting. it. Interesting. Okay. Um, and so, you know, he sees the convent school as, as a problem because it corrupts girls' morals in the same way that, you know, Locke sees the, the boarding school or the public school or whatever as, as a problem because you, you send children away from the family. They live in the school. They just live with other boys or in this case with other girls. What kinds of things can they possibly learn from this? Right. Um, so it's not so much, I mean, I don't think he sees it as a wide scale replacement of the family. Right, he sees okay. everything as undermining the family, society, mm. high society, fashion, all of that undermines the family because women don't want to sacrifice themselves to the family. They don't want to stay home. They don't, they want to be part of society. They want to run these salons and because they're not willing to sort of limit themselves to Mm. impose these limitations voluntarily on themselves, that undermines the family. Then of course the men like run off and, you know, sleep around and then you can't really have love in the family. The children are sent off to some school, right? Nobody loves each other. It's just a kind of empty formal institution. I mean, that's sort of what he describes in book one of the Emile. Yeah. Brutal. Um, And (laughs) in some ways, I don't know, again, kind of in some ways kind of prescient. I think they're definitely certainly on the right. A lot of people who would say that that is actually kind of what happened. Yeah. I mean, you know, he has, he, he's a sort of, you know, reactionary when it comes yeah. to the question of women. Um, but I think there's, there's a real internal logic to what he's arguing for, which is that like the family is not an organic institution. And I mean, it, it's, it's organic, but it's not like a, a um, what would be the 
word, spontaneous institution. Right. Uh, once you have a kind of, you know, modernity in which there are these cities like Paris and there is, you know, they're controlled by fashion and there's luxury and all of these, you know, there's commerce, all of these factors are at play, then the family becomes more, at least spontaneously would would sort of empty out because there's all these temptations outside of it. Mm. And so the only way to sustain the family is through this kind of voluntary self-limitation that women have to impose on themselves and men too. I mean, it's not like Emil has like this really exciting social, like he doesn't get to do anything <laughs> fun either, right? They both have to, in a sense, commit themselves to the family, remove themselves from society, tr- you know, turn against all of those temptations for the sake of raising their children correctly. Uh, so there is a, a kind of, you know, self-sacrifice that's required. And, you know, that doesn't really, doesn't really harmonize with modern feminism. And so it, in that sense, Rousseau is reviled. But I don't think that if you look at what he offers men, it's like all that much more free. Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting also, I mean, I think there are a lot of ways about how Rousseau discussed women, at least as you discuss them in your book, that really stuck with me. Uh, And it's interesting to me that in the end, uh, you think he's proposing Sophie's education as like the education, Mm -hmm. the woman's education. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? Because that, to me, was kind of out of left field. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, he has the, the book is called Emil. Right. It's about Emil, <laughs> right? And mostly it has been read as being an education for Emil, the boy. And then, you know, there's book five and it's like an afterthought. Well, it turns out Emil needs a wife. So what are we going to do? We're going to like conjure up this woman and here's what her education would be like briefly. And then she'll be perfect for Emil. Um, and I think that, you know, Rousseau is doing a lot of different things. I mean, Emile is in a sense, that's his greatest book. It's in the most complex book that he wrote. And he's trying to do a lot of different things in it. And so, you know, there's a, a tendency among scholars to try to assimilate all of Rousseau's work into sort of one explanation, like he is a Republican, mm. or, you know, he cares about the philosophical life more than anything, or he cares about the civic life more than anything. Uh, and, that is not really possible because that's not what Rousseau is trying to do. I think Rousseau is trying to work with the, he's trying to understand the dilemma of modernity. Right. And what are the options? Once, once we're in modernity and we can't go back, right? What options do we have to sort of work out the contradictions, the, the self-contradictions, the internal contradictions psychologically that modernity sort of forces on us? And there are several options. Like it's, there isn't just one answer. And there are different kinds of people with different kinds of dispositions who are inclined towards one more than the other, right? So he gives, you know, the social contract is kind of the civic option, right? Mm. It's like, well, what we do is we try to recreate a kind of ancient polity or an ancient city uh, and sort of make it a whole. And that's our whole and we're just parts of it. And, you know, we, we become sort of uber citizens. And that's, you know, I, if you look around, there are people who have this like deep desire for that uh, and that, you know, they're attracted to that. And then there's another alternative, which is that you abandon society. Society is corrupt. You know, other people are corrupt. You just have to sort of go off and figure out how to build yourself yourself. Yeah. Uh, and that's a solitary option. And there are probably a lot fewer people who have that deep desire, but there are some. And then I think that, that Emil kind of represents a third alternative, uh, which is this, you know, the family is a semi-stable, but not very stable uh, alternative where you can create a small society within a larger society that you sort of ignore the larger corrupt society and you focus on the small society and make that sort of the purpose of your life. And there can be a kind of self-consistency in living for your family that is not available in being a kind of citizen of one of these corrupt commercial modern states. Uh, And so Sophie kind of represents the education for that, because what Emile represents is really natural education. And one of the things that I argue, I mean, this is contentious, but some people (laughs) sort of argue this, is that Emile's education is a failure. That what, what Rousseau sets out to do, which is to make a man who is good for himself and good for others, is impossible, because he can only be good for himself or good for others. And that's sort of what Emile's education amounts to. It turns out that he's really not that good for others. You know, (laughs) you have the kind of education that, so like there are all these problems at the end, like the tutor never leaves, you know, they beg the tutor at the end, stay with us. Like we're not, we're not ready to, to raise our own child, but that's not supposed to be the outcome. It's supposed to be the case that the tutor is a temporary 
um, sort of assistant. Uh, or, you know, there's other problem, which is that if you think about what does Emil know about how to raise a child, mm. right, it's like nothing because he's not, he's not really taught to care about these kinds of questions. He doesn't understand other people from their perspective because for him to be taught to understand them that way would corrupt him. And it's Sophie who's actually taught all of these things. I mean, in a way, part of what Emil's education is, is like a kind of, you know, there's all these secrets that he's not told. And that's <laughs> the way that he can be self-consistent and sort of whole, mm. right? Which is by not caring about what other people think. Well, in order to not care what other people think, he kind of just doesn't care about other people. Right. And he doesn't understand what's going on in their minds because probably what's going on in their minds is like low and base and not worth his time. But it's a consideration if you try to think about where you're going to fit in society. So what I argue is that Sophie's education it doesn't lie to her. That in, you know, in so many ways, he describes her education. He almost exaggerates how enslaved she is to opinion. right? But all he's really saying is like in contrast to Emile, she understands that you know, other people's, where do other people's opinions come from? What are they judging you for? Why do those judgments make any internal sense to them? right? And yeah, it's all base. But you have to know it in order to see where you stand and what you need to do to get the things you want from these people. Right. And so Emile is just totally ignorant of it all. And Sophie knows the truth. Sophie knows that like Emile is being judged, that, you know, there are people who think this and that about Emile and that they might not do certain things for him because they think this and that about Emile. So she understands that. And so she the, the point of knowing it is so you can manipulate it. Right. And that's the kind of education that Sophie's given. She's she's informed about everything. She's informed about how society works, how people form their opinions, how base and vulgar they are. Uh, and in order that she can manipulate it to her in her interest. And that's really important for raising children, because you have to understand how they see themselves relative to other people. And Emile doesn't understand that. So, the you know, if you think about, well, what is what is a kind of you know, what is Emile's education trying to do? Emile's education seems to be trying to reveal something about human nature, right? That's a kind of philosophical inquiry into what humans are like and how they develop and how their minds develop. Uh, but Sophie is a kind of practical account of, well, if you want to get by, if you want to make the family a kind of refuge in a corrupt commercial bourgeois state, right, you actually have to know how that corrupt commercial bourgeois state is corrupt and you know what its corruption consists of and why you're trying to get away from it. And that's what Sophie knows. So Sophie is kind of at the end, the practical reiteration of Emile, right? You, Emile is not practical. It's not meant to be done. It's a big mistake by a lot of <laughs> pedagogues in Switzerland and other places in the 19th century to try to do it. And the first sign of the mistake that they made is that they said like, okay, let's just build schools where we teach the pedagogy that Rousseau, you know, propounded in Emile. Well, Rousseau said, don't build schools. <laughs> so, you know, that, that was their error is they take Emile to be a kind of practicable model. But it's really Sophie who's the practicable model. And it is less good in the sense that it's less self-consistent, less pure. Uh, in the sequel, I don't know how much value we ought to give to the sequel, but I talk about it a little bit in my book. You know, she's the one who, who falls uh, who gives into temptation in Paris right. and has an affair. So it turns out like this education did not really fully fortify her against every temptation. But I mean, I think the, the point about the family that Rousseau just makes over and over again, I mean, he makes the same point in Julie is it's really fragile. Mm. It's a solution, but it's based on all kinds of circumstances that you can't control. Like what if one of your children dies? Right. What if this, ha you know, these things are just out of your control and because they're out of your control, they're more dangerous. Right. Than relying fully on yourself, which you have some control over. Right. So the family is a fragile solution. It falls apart. It's based on certain contradictions that are less contradictory than the contradictions of the larger society, but are still contradictory. Uh, and so in the sequel, you know, Emile's family falls apart in Julie, you know, she dies slash kills herself. Uh, it's sort of an ambiguous situation. Right. But, um, you know, Rousseau never tries to advance the family in the way that like today, social conservatives often do. Right. It's just like this foolproof solution. Right. right. He says it's one solution and it's subject to certain, you know, vagaries of fate and you can't control those things. And so you can try for this, but you can't 
fully count on it, right? But the same is true of politics and the same is true even of solitude, which is like, you know, your body may fail you, your mind may fail you, like you don't really control everything. Yeah. I mean, we're just about at time here. It's interesting because, I mean, knowing what I know about Rousseau, which I'll admit is not that much, but it feels a little bit autobiographical, to be honest, like the way that you're discussing it and this nervousness about having family. Well, I mean, his family life is like a lot more right. disastrous than, you know, Emile and Sophie or Julie, but yeah. uh, it's, no, I mean, he doesn't even really try to have a family. No. <laughs> uh, you know, the autobiography of Rousseau. Like, people are always <laughs> bringing this up. They're like, oh, he abandoned his children. How, what does he have to say about education? Yeah. But, you know, I don't, I'm not really sure that's like a totally valid critique. Like he can understand other people yeah. without actually being very good to them. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's obviously there are certain autobiographical elements. I mean, the, 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 um, Confession of the Savoyard Vicar is often thought to right. be a sort of autobiographical account of his religious conversion, um, but it's hard to say how far that goes, and mm. I, I wouldn't want to push it too far. All right. Well, this has been super interesting. Thanks so much for your time. I'm excited uh, for the upcoming book on this stuff. Uh, it should be really interesting, and thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. There you have it, Madisonians, Rita Koganson on liberal states' authoritarian families. Her book is in the show notes. And again, I'd really encourage you to reach out and follow us on Twitter at Madison Program, Instagram, Facebook, or our website, jmp.princeton.edu. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time here on Madison's Notes.